This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that, well, is a bit younger and frankly a bit better looking this week with a special guest in the studio. I'm Scott Phillips and with me is, well, no, not Doc. He's again away, off in Canada having a good time, hopefully. Uh, enjoying enjoying a bit of the, uh, the great north. Instead, it's me and like we did last week, we're going to have a special interview episode of Motley Fool Money. Now, this is the second in an occasional series we'll be doing, talking to some of the best and the brightest minds in business and finance. And I'm pleased to say our special guest is none other than a very smart and talented economist who has been bringing her expertise and insights to the market for a couple of years now. I first came across her on Twitter and find her insights and explanations very interesting, thought-provoking, and not the usual stuff we necessarily get from the usual suspects. You'll hear more about that in a minute. Oh, and she's also spoken on the TED stage, which I'm just very, very, very jealous and impressed about, so that, that is awesome. Now, check out this CV. She holds a first-class honours degree in economics from the University of Sydney. I'm also already feeling a bit... Um, a bit, uh, you know, worried here. She has a, she's been a regular economic commentator on the FBI radio, has been a guest speaker on Triple J's Hack, 702 ABC Sydney, Sky News, and at the TEDx Youth Sydney, as I mentioned. She's provided comment for various media outlets, including The Guardian Australia, The Australian Financial Review, Pedestrian TV, The Daily Telegraph, and more. I'm well and truly out of my class. And while she's, we're generally a podcast about stocks, investing is a wide universe, and both the property market and the broader economy should be topics of interest to our listeners, we hope, and all investors. Plus, we reckon some of our listeners probably maybe own their own homes, be looking to buy a home, or maybe even have an investment property. So I'm pleased to introduce Eliza Owen, Head of Australian Research at CoreLogic. Welcome, Eliza, and thanks for joining Motley Fool Money. Thank you for having me. Thank you for the flattering introduction. Mate, it's all true, which is the worst part. I, I, I feel, feel so elated. <laughs> I, I'm feeling very overwhelmed, so I'll do my best to keep up if I possibly, oh, possibly can. <laughs> now, Eliza, you and I, we contacted on, uh, connected on Twitter a yes. little while back, and I've certainly followed your, your commentary. Um, fair to say that you're not one of the usual suspects, not just because you happen to be female and young, which is unusual in, in your space. Uh, that's actually irrelevant because you're just a very smart, thoughtful commentator and with some different views, which I quite like. So, mate, I want to just start off with kind of where are we is, is, is the broad question. So the last couple of years, if I look from the outside in, I'm not a property expert. You are. That's why you're here. Um, it's been something of a roller coaster for the economy, for stock markets and for property prices. So not only did we have a 25% increase in stocks last year, but property's gone from, is there a bubble, to there must be a bubble, to, oh, thank God the bubble's over. Now kind of back to, well, we're back where we were when we started. It's kind of new year, same problems. How would you summarise the Australian property market? Where are we at? Yeah, I think it really helps to think of those seemingly separate and erratic movements. <laughs> Good idea. <laughs> As, as part of a larger property cycle. So okay. the past 12 months, we describe as a year of two halves. Mm -hmm. And that's because we saw the property market go through uh, the trough of its cycle. Yep. And then it had this really remarkable rebound okay. in the same year. The old V-shaped recovery is that we're talking about? Yeah. Okay. So um, in the first half of the year, CoreLogic home value indices um, saw a 3% decline mm -hmm. in the national um, dwelling value. Mm -hmm. um, and in the following six months, it's come back up 6% from that trough. <laughs> and the 3% the is a little bit, I won't say underrepresented, but over the long term, some of the capital city values are down like 10, 15%. Absolutely. So that 3% in the first six months of mm -hmm. 2019, that's just the tail end of a larger decline oh, that right, we've okay. seen. The, the decline really started in um, 2017, mm -hmm. sort of uh, mid to late 2017. Um, and so we've 
come off at the moment this cyclical low um, and prices have fallen enough that people are willing to start buying again. Okay. And that's kind of the cyclical part of it. Mm -hmm. We've seen these kind of structural changes which have catalyzed it. So um, from sort of uh, the cash rate cut um, that occurred in June. Right. Um, and then we had further cash rate cuts. So in the space of about five months over 2019, mm. the cash rate half. Um, and as we'll probably... <laughs> That's not nothing, about, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, research from the Reserve Bank suggested a 1% cut in the cash rate um, can lead to an 8% increase in property prices nationally. Wow, okay. um, that's uh, sort of a model that uh, estimates that 8% increase would occur over the following two years, assuming the cash rate stays low. Right. And we're only expecting the cash rate to come down further in 2020. Okay. Um, so... Yeah, we've seen that. We saw um, the re-election of the coalition government, which created some certainty mm. around tax reform in property, uh, namely that they wouldn't be touching negative gearing or right. capital gains concessions. I will ask you about that a little bit later. Absolutely. Um, and we also saw the repeal of certain lending constraints in the beginning mm. of mm. 2019. Mm. So during the very large price booms uh, in our popular cities of Sydney and Melbourne, um, we saw that the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority came in and actually physically limited the amount mm. of growth in uh, investment lending to properties specifically. Which seemed like a good move at the time for economic kind of stability. It feels a little bit to me like that's kind of been done away with by the rate cuts, that whatever, whatever impact they were trying to have seems to have moderated, gone been removed. There's some sense that maybe we're back where we start. So, so what what they're trying to do, or what they were trying to do at the time, was limit potentially risky lending. So, what they did was they limited mm. the growth in investment lending to a cap of 10% a year. That was introduced in 2014. In 2017, they came in with this other cap, which was of the new money that was lent for housing, only 30% of it could be on interest-only terms. Right. And that's because at the time, almost 50% of lending <laughs> was going out on interest-only terms. Yeah. And even though we have seen a rebound in prices off the back of cash rate cuts, mm. it's not necessarily came come with the same risk in the lending profile. Oh, okay. So we can see that in the lending data where instead of investor lending growing really quickly, mm. it's actually owner-occupiers uh, and even first-home buyers who have had uh, higher rates of growth in the amount of lending. It's fascinating, okay. It is interesting. Personally, I think the fact that the strength of the rebound, though it seems to be forefronted by owner-occupiers, mm. I think the bank of mum and dad has had a lot <laughs> to do with it, right? So there is an yeah. aspect of equity still being used to then oh, put right, back okay. into to housing. It's kind of being hidden by being in different, different hands rather than being an actual investment loan per se. It's being given to the kids and they're using the money. Potentially. I think okay. there's, there's work to be done in that space to understand just how important the bank of mum and dad is. Mm -hmm. um, Fifth biggest bank in the country, I hear, is uh, the I've heard that as well, yeah, okay. yeah from, from Westpac, I believe. Um, <laughs> there you go. And uh, the other thing to consider is that people want to buy, they want to own property. Mm. So they were waiting for prices to reach their trough. Mm. Um, so there you have a period okay, of about right, right, two right. years where buyers go right off because they're concerned about falling house prices. Mm -hmm. They think they can get into the market at a better time. And so as soon as that rebound starts to happen off the back okay. of two years of decline, we get this surge in, in kind of pent up demand. Yeah, right. And so these Quick, are now's the, the time, factors, that kind of stuff. Exactly. Okay. And so these are the factors that have led to um, what might seem like a, a very surprising jump in house prices mm. off their trough. Mm. 
Um, we think that it could be limited and those growth rates in 2020 could start to slow okay. because of things like affordability constraints, yeah, the right. fact that wage growth is still quite low. Um, so it will be interesting to see if this momentum can hold through 2020. Okay. Uh, well, um, that, that's fascinating. I, I've got a lot of questions here that I'll ask you. Well, some I'll get to, some I won't, but I'm, I'm more sure. sure I'm kind of going where the conversation leads us. So <laughs> you, you, you've asked, you mentioned about the, the fact that well, you talk about the fact that first-time buyers jumping back into the market now, or an occupiers in particular, maybe rather than first-time buyers in the market now, where they weren't as as proportionally large before the the falls. Purely rationally, that seems unusual to me in the sense that they weren't there at the current prices. The prices fell. Now they're back to the, the previous level, but they're there all of a sudden now. Is that just simply a kind of a psychological bias or change? Do you think at some point, oh, house prices to help? You know, remember the bubble talk two years ago maybe, whatever it was, was like, we're not going to buy too expensive, too expensive. Now it's just expensive, but people seem to be buying anyway. Is that is that the right characterization if it is what's driving that, do you reckon? Yeah, that's really interesting. So I think it's important to highlight that in some areas, prices still aren't as expensive. Okay. So if we look at Sydney, it's still 6% below its um, oh, peak okay. value that okay. was reached uh, in 2017. Right. For houses, that's even more so. Talk of a bubble, I think right. it was safe to say that there was, I mean, we can only really see a bubble when it's popped, in right? So, exactly, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I think it's, uh, I think it did look like a bubble in Sydney housing specifically. Okay. Um, as opposed to units? Uh, as housing? opposed to units, okay, units yep. didn't have the same kind of highs and lows. Okay. Um, and if we look at Melbourne, Melbourne property prices are currently sitting 2.3% below their peak. We imagine if they go at the same trajectory that they'll probably um, come back to a, you know, a, a new record high okay. um, sometime early 2020. Um, but to come back to the first home buyers, generally they're guided by how high house prices are. Mm. So um, when we see house prices rise, we see an inverse movement with the participation of first home buyers. They will start to go okay. down. Okay. As a result, we expect that in 2020, if house prices continue to rise, that first home buyer cohort may come back down again. Right, makes sense. You mentioned Sydney and Melbourne prices. And, uh, I, it, what I love about having you on the show is that we get a chance to actually break it down rather than look at just total numbers, right? Which is easy for me to do. And frankly, you've done more research in the last five or ten minutes and I've done the entire time we were doing this <laughs> podcast. So if you, if you could lay off a little bit of the, the, the expertise. Just in housing. Be, just, yeah, well, that depends on what I'll be doing in shares. Um, so uh, capital cities, you about Sydney and Melbourne. Mm-hmm. Can you give us a sense of kind of, I guess, and, and without wanting to necessarily do a full laundry list of everything else, a quick, just quick whip around the country in terms of capitals and then regions, any particular highlights or lowlights? I know Perth has been struggling for quite a while. I think Darwin was in the doldrums. Western Queensland, I'm pretty sure, is still struggling, or at least was for the kind of end of the mining boom. A lot of people bought property there. The old positive cash flow property thing that was out for a while went away because the cash flow went away, funnily enough. (laughs) What's kind of happening around the country? If you just give us a quick potted tour. Well, again, I think a way to help contextualise this is to think of the property cycle and kind of how it works across the country. Mm-hmm. Generally, we would expect, and uh, data has shown this historically as well, that all the kind of capital city markets um, tend to experience the same movements, um, but they experience it at a lag. Oh, right. So if you think of Sydney or Melbourne as a first mover, we might expect Brisbane to then move, then, you know, the rest of the um, sort of East Coast, and then we see movements in Adelaide and Perth as well. Okay. Where that gets distorted and where we start to hear stories of Perth and Darwin in the doldrums mm. and, um, you know, the Brisbane property market um, not doing as well is where we see big structural interruptions to that property cycle. Okay. So in the case... 
case of Perth and Darwin, it, it came in the form of the mining boom and bust. Mm. The mining boom was huge. Mm. Um, at its peak, mining investment um, it was equivalent to about 8.5% of GDP. That's so massive. Yeah. And then in 2014, you get um, steel glut in China, um, price of iron ore halves over the space of about a year. Mm. Um, and as a result, we've seen Perth, continue to fall, dwelling values continue to fall. They're currently sitting at about 21% below their peak in 2014. Wow, that's still a huge it is enor- it's a It's a long period of time, but yeah. I think it shouldn't be understated just how massive that mining boom was. Yeah, okay. um, and the same with Darwin. Darwin's even worse um, because the workforce is more transient. Mm, mm. Um, people basically go there for the job and if the job's not there... So uh, Darwin dwelling values, we're seeing about 30% or over 30% wow. below their peak in 2014. Difference between Perth and Darwin is that Perth, we're starting to see a tightening in the rental market. Ah. So rents are up 2% over the year in Perth. The vacancy rate is one of the fastest declining vacancy rates in the country. Mm. Uh, that could signal the return of the market. And indeed, we're starting to see that downswing. I wish you had your TV show, Scott, so I, should, I could. I'm doing like a curve motion. With you are. My I'm, head. I can. I can absolutely. Um, I can ga- confirm. I was doing a curve. But but that downward to the right is, is flattening out. And right. in December, the figures were showing us that this was the second consecutive month that Perth um, dwelling values didn't fall. Mm. So I know a lot of property analysts, including myself, we've been early over the years to call the bottom of the Perth market. Okay. But the signs now suggest that we really could be starting to move through okay. that trough. Okay. Now, other cities, um, Hobart, obviously. Well, that's the big one. That's it's been... been a star performer. Yeah, yeah. For the last five years, CoreLogic data has shown about 7.5% uh, annualised growth wow. in, in the dwelling market. Mm-hmm. In, a, in a market where we've had peaks and troughs elsewhere around the country. It, yeah, and again, it is it fits into the property cycle. Okay. Its growth lagged Sydney and Melbourne. Mm-hmm. It went through its upswing. We're starting to see growth rates soften a little bit. Um, it may even avoid the downswing off the back of cash rate cuts and continued strength in the rental market. Mm. So Hobart rents were up. Um, significantly over the year, a very tight rental market there. And the thing about Hobart is you're also getting that capital growth, which makes it a really appealing market yeah, right. for investors. Yeah. Um, and you have limited supply relative to the kind of um, building that happens mm. um, in other parts of the country. Uh, and Brisbane, I think it's southeast Queensland could be a good market for 2020 in terms of capital growth. Okay. Um, we're starting to see the, um, I mean, the Building approvals have been moderating in the apartment space since 2017. Um, And Brisbane's an interesting one because the house market has actually performed pretty well. Um, So over the past five years, uh, the Brisbane house value is up 7%. It's units that really drag the uh, market down as a whole. Okay. So units are only up about 1.4% over a, over a five-year period. Right. Um, but again, we're starting to see conditions stabilise in the apartment market now. I So, and there's so many different regional differences. That's what I like about this. You know, it's I've got to say, for some many shares investors, equity investors, are pretty or can be dismissive of the property market, which I think is a huge mistake because it's, you know, they, they look at all these different shares, 800, 2,000 shares across the market, and talk about individual shares and say, the property market is dot, 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 right? And it's not a single property market, as you've just highlighted. Um, I, I'm, I'm assuming, I'm, I'm going to make an assumption, you can correct me, the Brisbane, um, or the, the lack of growth in unit pricing in Brisbane is largely a supply response, yeah? So supply has grown at such a fast rate, there's been no shortage of demand, a shortage of supply fundamentally. 
is that true? And then secondly, I suppose I'm also, so I'm a, I live in the Southern Highlands, New South Wales, but I'm a Sydney boy originally. So many buildings, so many units still being built in Sydney. Just kind of, can you compare and contrast those two markets and maybe where things are at in your mind? <coughs> so I think it's really, oh, sorry. Have, have, have a drink of water. I will, I will sing and dance. Little, can have a little I, I, will, I will sing and dance over here and, uh, and, and fill some air time. But, uh, oh, that's a nice dance. <laughs> See, now you want the TV show again, His don't you? His limbs are going everywhere. Um, okay, so the... Brisbane dwelling supply, yeah. I mean, it was just too high relative. I, th- I think a, a lot of developers speculated on the high growth rates they were seeing in Sydney and Melbourne and mm. expected that to spill mm. over to the Brisbane market. The difference was at the time the broader market was affected by the decline of the mining sector as well. Right. Employment growth wasn't as strong. Wages growth wasn't as strong. Um, and so we didn't see the same kind of pickup in demand, um, whereas I think it's, it's absorbed more quickly, certainly in Melbourne as well. Okay. Um, but it does come back to those fundamentals of yeah, yeah. what does the population growth look like? Right. What do the underlying economic factors look like? Mm-hmm. And when you have something like mining, which proved to be very volatile, um, I think that's had a long-lasting effect on on the markets. It's interesting to me. So you talk about population, talk about mining, and it just occurs to me that we kind of... There's, there's, like like in all markets, like in all, all assets, there's a combination which is rationality and then there is just the sentiment pieces, the exuberance or the pessimism or whatever that goes with that. There was no decline in Sydney or Queensland or Adelaide prices when the Perth property market took off because everyone went there to, to mine, right? Or was there? So you, you, you pull your face, which says I'm probably wrong oh, here. I think there was a little bit of an okay. inversion because I, I think the other thing to remember with the uh, extent of the mining boom, mm. it, I believe, and I could be wrong, I'd have to double check the data, but from memory it was a time where there was pretty stagnant performance across markets like Sydney and Hobart. Okay, so there was sort of some withdrawal of demand, which was suppressing yeah. price. Okay, I mean, right. another factor was the fact that the increase in commodity prices and, and export of commodities had pushed the dollar so high mm. so that mm. your manufacturing-based economies or, um, you know, overseas tourism and mm. acquisition mm. was affected by that as well. Okay. Um, so anyway, but... Um, I feel like I interrupted. No, no, no. That, that, that was the answer to the question. I, was, I, was just, I guess I was curious. It seems to me that while there was a massive growth during the peak periods in, in Darwin and Perth, there seems to be no equivalent fall in the other states. There seems to be more a, an overall exuberance uh, where prices yeah. just nationally went up anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then on the other way, when it went in reverse, there simply wasn't enough demand left in those other smaller cities maybe just kind of soak up what was left. Like it just seems a bit disproportionate, the, the growth and declines in those cities that didn't necessarily get reflected by the population shift over the eastern states. Well, I think you, the thing you've got to remember is like is, Perth is sitting 21% below its peak price. There was a time um, in um, sort of the trough of the Sydney market where it was about 17% below its peak price. Okay, right. So I think generally the downswings uh, are proportionate okay. to the the level of ramp up and, and mm, demand mm. that you see as well. It's just that in the case of Sydney, it, the boom and bust kind of happened in a much shorter period of time. Yeah, yeah. There was a time when we were, well, I say we, it wasn't necessarily me, although maybe I was you right or I. wrong. <laughs> you and I, that's what we were doing exactly. While, while I was dancing and you were coughing, we were <laughs> speculating on house prices. Uh, the, the, um, the, the, the headline grabbing Overseas investor, and let's be clear, there was Chinese investor because that was kind of the, the hot sort of you know group that was being blamed at the time because it seems easier to do that. Um, a bit of editorialising there from me. <laughs> um, I can do that. Yeah, I don't know if you can. Um, that was that was to blame in air quotes um, for a long time. People were saying that's what's pushing prices up. Then of course state governments responded. There were rule changes federally about who could own property and what they had to to do to own that property. Do you have a sense at all of the impact of the entry and exit of that buyer group in the Australian market? 
I think there is limited data on it, and okay. it was a concern certainly in 2014 when um, property prices in Sydney and Melbourne were uh, increasing really rapidly. Um, because we don't have a view of who buys what, it's very <laughs> yeah. hard to attribute overseas buyers to certain properties. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's potentially a bit of, um, uh, you know, just generalisation, which can be quite dangerous. <laughs> what, what, well, it's kind of easy in the tabloid world to be able to point over there and say, it's <laughs> them, it's those people. Oh, yeah. And then it was undersupply and then right. it was avocados. <laughs> um, and then it was my trip to Europe. No, I, I mean... The, <laughs> At the end of the day... So it was your fault, is that what you're saying? It was my fault. Okay, there, there we, we found I, the, we've solved the problem. At the end of the day, the thing that brought property prices back down was mm. limiting the amount of um, potentially risky forms of lending and uh, a lot of sort of investment speculation because yeah, we could yeah. see the you know very high portions of investment participation in Sydney and Melbourne. Mm. Um, there, I believe there are some data sets and certainly some of the portal data, they, they can get a sense of who from overseas is, is looking at what property and, and find demand in that way. Yeah. Um, but uh, overall, I'd say there's a paucity of, of data and we mm-hmm. sort of need to do m- more work potentially matching up and seeing who's buying what. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I'm curious, you, you kind of talked about the... Uh, so uh, I think what, what I like about the conversation so far is it sounds like what you're saying is even though the prices are back to where they were, we have a more, I'll say, a higher quality property market. It seems like the, it was a more stable market, less risky lending, yeah, I think less exposed yep. buyer class, if you're owner class, in terms mm. of that property investment mix. I've got a, I've got a theory. I'm going to hit you on my theory. And I'm going to see what you think. So I think, and, and we'll, you and I have kind of interacted on Twitter a little bit about this in the past, but there's, there's been, I think, it's fair to say, and I'll get you to answer this one, then I'll go on my theory. There's been a, a financialization of property over the last, say, 20 years. It's gone from being, lifestyle asset even sounds too much, but it was it was a place to live, right? And you bought what you could afford and you live there. And there's a whole lot of changes that are going on from that to effectively it being treated as another financial asset. And arguably, maybe it always should have been, maybe it never should be, and that, that's a whole different question. But So uh, you're nodding at me, so I'll, I'll assume you're agreeing with the premise at least of that part. Is that is that fair to say? Yes. All right. So to the extent that is true... There's data out there that suggests that while prices are very high relative to incomes, historically speaking, they're actually the, the affordability hasn't changed all that much. Again, these are averages, so there are always outliers. Over the last 20 or 30 years, because household incomes have risen and the interest rate fundamentally has fallen dramatically since when I bought my first place and that sort of stuff, to some degree, while prices feel like they've gone up and therefore are more expensive in, in, in sticker price terms, the ability to... to, to fund that um, that purchase with monthly repayments doesn't hasn't changed dramatically, I don't think, at least on the numbers I've seen, as a proportion of income. And, and on that basis, maybe either they're not expensive now or they were expensive then, or simply it's what you could or should expect in a market where we have a financialized asset where it's like, well, it's going to cost 30% of income, whatever the number is, to repay. It was that 30 years ago. It might be 33 or 34% now. But in that case, if that's the basis, it's actually not that, it's not that expensive or it simply hasn't gone up as much as we otherwise might like to think. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I think that if Good you, answer. Yeah. <laughs> you're a genius. Um, <laughs> I'm going to quote you. I'm going to get that clipped out of the Triple M guys. If you're listening, just take that take that clip and replay that for me. I'll put it on my Twitter profile. Um, so if we look at um, housing occupancy costs from the ABS, mm-hmm. so their data suggests about 16% of income is spent on mortgages, so people who okay. have a mortgage. Um, and that's actually come down over time because um, interest rates have come down. Mm-hmm. So the 
standard variable mortgage rate is about 4.8% at the moment, and that's at its lowest level since at least the 1950s, <laughs> since, since we have the data on. Like, yeah. I, don't, I don't disagree that there's um, affordability in, in that sense, in mm-hmm. the, the mortgage serviceability. I think where we make the mistake is equating the um, low interest rate, high house price, low house price, high interest rate um, in equating them in terms of accessibility. Yeah, right. Because obviously the big thing there is like, I'd love to have a mortgage. Mm-hmm. I just don't have the hundreds of thousands of dollars lying around right. for a deposit. And the higher house prices get, the more of a deposit you need. Mm-hmm. And we see that the majority of secured loans mm-hmm. are on an LVR of um, greater than 80, 80%. Um, percent. Right. Oh, right. Uh, sorry, of... Um, of under 80%. Yes, yes. So in, in most cases, you need your 20% deposit, mm-hmm. um, at which signifies the buy a million dollar house, well. is 200 grand. If Sydney, it, you're not going to get away with more, exactly. less than that, right? And the fact that banks are, are wanting LVRs that high yeah. signals the risk in, yeah, yeah. Having, in having property prices so high. That's uh, the cost of the risk that you're taking on. So um, CoreLogic measures affordability in lots of ways. We mm. look at mortgage serviceability, which again um, has, has been coming down as a portion of income. Um, we look at time taken to save a 20% deposit. Oh, that's cool. What are those um, so uh, it suggests a typical household across Australia with a savings rate of 15% um, would need over six years to save up their 20% deposit nationally. Right. Um, in Sydney, it could take over 11 years. And these are averages too, right? Like, there's, There are people on all ends of that income spectrum. There are people Absolutely. on the top 2%, the bottom 20%. They're very different experiences. Yeah, and I think if you wanted to go deeper than that and say, look at um, behavioral economics and mm. say, well, what is the incentive to save 15% of your income right. for 11 years <laughs> to get a 20% deposit? <laughs> to, think, to then qualify for a mortgage for another 30 years. <laughs> so I sort of think the, you know, people, and I'm and I'm not really sure about, you know, the, the consumption or whatever mm, off mm. the top of my head, but it, people look at uh, younger generations or people with uh, lower access to housing and say, uh, oh, well, they have too much short-term consumption. Mm. Tell me, where is the incentive to change your consumption patterns when the goal right. is set that far away? Right, right. And that's where measures like the median multiple come into play, mm-hmm. Where, which, uh, you know, when that thing you describe of looking at the house price relative to incomes... Um, that's where it's a good measure. It's an internationally comparable measure mm. where we can say this is where we sit in terms of the price. Mm. Um, so I think that's important to take into consideration. And the other thing, which I think is important, and sorry if I'm rambling. Go about for it. No, this, that's what I asked you. No, no, please do. Yeah, yeah. Topic I'm passionate about is you mentioned the financialization of housing over time mm-hmm. and that becoming a norm. Um, whether rightly or wrongly, it, to me, it kind of seems a bit absurd that at the peak of um, the investment boom in Sydney, say, mm. we saw a lot of investors were actually young people trying to get into the property market. <laughs> you had the anecdotal rise of the yeah. rent vesta, right, right, which right. means you have to buy a property yeah. before you can own a home. And by the way, some of the some of the rental yields they were hoping to get on those were minuscule. Like you know, we're talking well, one, two, two and a half percent, right? That's... They were looking for the capital growth. Right. The strategy was, and I'm not saying this is financial advice, but just from yeah. you know anecdotes, mm. the strategy was to get in, take advantage of the capital growth, use mm. the equity mm. in that to then get something that you want to close. <laughs> To your job. Right. And it's like, this is actually satire. Yeah. Yeah, the yeah. fact that we're asking young people to buy a home before they can buy a home. Like, and, 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 and I guess fair. when you think about policy around affordability, yeah. where we are as a nation, 
I guess that's what's important to do is mm. step back and ask ourselves, is this how we want housing treated? Yeah. Yeah. I am realistic that people need to grow their wealth mm. and that property is a big part of that in the way that we treat, um, you know, taxes in um, retirement around mm. property and things like that. Mm. Home ownership is very important to a comfortable retirement. Mm. So there's got to be a balance, mm. but I think it's important to just keep abreast of, um, you know, how high those prices are actually getting. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not a big fan of the generation wars, generally speaking, either direction, but I think it's fair to say that, as you said, if you if you own an investment property and you try to make money off that, you're doing so by making life more expensive for other people. There is something about, look, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a capitalist, I'm an investor. It's what we do, right? But there's just something weird about – it's a kind of a zero-sum game at some level, right? Like for me to make money on my property, I've got to make it more expensive for you to either rent or buy or both. Um, there's something kind of, you know, generationally bizarre about exactly that that kind of reality, right? It's not like a – I mean, to some degree, we could argue the same to some degree about investing in, in stocks potentially, but at least in that case, they're, they're not, it's not a whole market, right? The property market is the only market. It's exactly. the entire market by and definition. The stock market could potentially be more productive. At right, the end right. of the day, when you invest in a house, you're investing in an asset that people can live in and feel comfortable in and, and create a home. Mm. But beyond that, how productive is it, say, compared to investing in a machine that mm, can mm, produce mm. things? And right, know, right, right. It doesn't, it's it, not progressing anything, is it? Potentially, it's not the most um, productive asset. And I think that's where we need to bolster other parts of the Australian economy to mm. create a decent alternative investment to... Housing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm. I, look, you're the expert here, but I, I've had to. Say, I've written a couple of articles about housing for Fairfax in the past, and I, I'm, I'm still unsure as to how I think we should be dealing with housing. But it strikes me that's probably the very financialization of something that is a, a, arguably a human right, but at the very least something that we all should aspire to wanting as part of a civilized society. It just seems a little bit strange to me that we've pushed it to such an extreme that it gets a little bit silly at, at some level. I'm going to throw another pet topic because I can, and because you're here, and because you're stuck in the, you're stuck with the headphones on until I turn them off. So you've pretty much got to, you know. Yeah, you pretty much got to play, play the game I want to play here. So this is, a, I, I think it's a really difficult, I've never been able to put this into print because it comes with so much baggage around intent and expectation and what it necessarily means. So I'll, I'll throw it at you. Housing is more expensive because it's been financialized at one level, right? But we also talk about housing as a proportion of household income, not individual income. And so it strikes me that for all of the gains that feminism achieved over the 70s and 80s, we kind of, as a society, then co-opted women into almost forced labor, right? Like it, there's, and, and I, I struggle to write that because I don't, I, ne- I don't want to come across as me being anti-feminist or somehow that feminism was a problem or wrong or whatever. It was supposed to be about liberating women, giving them the options to do whatever they wanted to do, which was what we should do. And we've kind of co-opted that as side because it's become this, it's, I mean, every, every house sells an auction market, whether it's literally an auction market or simply you price the house at what you think someone else is going to pay. And if they're going to pay more, you put the price up. So at some level, we've kind of co-opted women into into work rather than giving the option to do so and then leave the workforce or have a family where one works and doesn't have whatever gender, we've kind of ended up with a situation where there is no choice. It's gone from one income and you can't work to two incomes and you must work just to afford housing. I, I think, yeah, it, I wouldn't say you forced women into work. I'd right. say women uh, probably feel very empowered working, some of them. Sure. Some oh, sorry, of them sorry, feel... Uh, yeah, you're right. So not forced into work, but but to afford the house, you almost have to. So it wasn't that they had to work in and of themselves. But if you don't afford a house in Sydney, how can you do that? You can't do that on one income. So there is yes. there is a, so, there is a need for that, the woman to work regardless of whether she wants to or not. It's probably my point. Rather than being forced in it directly. Yeah, but I think nowadays you could argue that for both genders. I mm, think mm. I think where the feminist issue or you know, it's a it's a sensitive topic of course. Right, right, right. But say, the unintended consequence. Yeah, is the if there's a person who doesn't want to be right. in a partnered 
um, situation or okay, a yeah, household yeah. situation. So, for example, people who can't live with their parents yeah, for right. whatever reason yeah. or people who um, don't want to, um, you know, stay with their partner or something mm-hmm. like that. And that's where we see, for example, in the homeless population, yeah, uh, the right. fastest growing cohort is women over 50. That's phenomenal. So I, I think th- that is another really important aspect of... Uh, especially social and affordable housing, Mm, mm. ensuring that we can provide enough housing for the people that need it so they can be in a secure situation. Yeah, that's a really important point. Because we don't want them, you know, dependent on a a bad domestic situation. Yeah, right. Exactly, yeah, yeah, Yeah. that's fair. It just always struck me that, you know, if if housing was still a proportion of a single income and therefore either a single person or a couple had more options because of that, there is some sense that... A decent amount of the proportional yeah. increase in pricing is just because we can, right? Like, if we yeah, do those housing affordability numbers based on one income as it was in 19, pick a number, 70, just for, to pick some mm. senior years, at that point, housing affordability would have been house price divided by one income. Mm. Now it's house price divided by two incomes. Oh, it's roughly the same. It's like, yeah, but two people have to actually work. Either, as you say, in one person household, you can't do it, or in two person household, you kind of have to, to mm. make the numbers work to be able to afford the, the place you want to buy. All right, I'll move off my uh, I'll move off my, my little my little personal view. So look, I, I had this question written down. Uh, I put the question together last week, and then I, I noticed on my email a couple of days ago. We're recording this last week, so this will hopefully go to air on the seventeenth of January. We're on the seventh of Jan, though. You sent out a or you put up a blog post, which was sent to me by Core Logic, and it was perfect because what I was going to ask you is, again, you, you talk about the accessibility problem of deposits, and I. To my point about the financialization, whether it's right or wrong, the fact that it exists is real and, and affordability isn't necessarily worse on a repayment basis, but it's much worse, as you've already said very clearly, on the on an accessibility level. And it strikes me that the requirement at all to have a 20% deposit feels in this market, in this environment, I don't want to create more my house price speculation. I don't want to create more financial security by people having not enough equity in their homes. But arbitrarily to say it's 20 or it's not, 15 10 five percent if you've got the if you've got the, the means to repay a loan having having a double digit deposit always felt to me like it was more than it needed to be in an environment years and years ago when it wasn't financial and it wasn't as much as many transactions going on and it was harder to buy or sell a house maybe I get it because there's some issues there but if a bank's prepared to lend any money at, at some basis I mean frankly the the lender's mortgage insurer is going to go broke if there is a major decline and there is a lot of calling to those loans right so it's kind of like the banks are fooling themselves I think that's clear. On the flip side, you know, why need 20%? Now, the first home loan deposit scheme, the new government scheme, I see there was 3,000 spots already taken up in the first week, which is blew me away. I, I thought there'd be hundreds if that, right? I, I'm just astonished. But you obviously would have expected it, so you'll, you're smarter than me. Um, the, the, the reality around, so you say that the headline is, the first home loan deposit scheme has an accessibility problem. And it's not even that the 20% deposit is inaccessible, but the 5% itself still has an accessibility problem. Tell us about that. Okay, so I looked at just a typical property price across Australia mm-hmm. and compared three income levels just to say, well, look, if, if you know, there are these three income levels, um, I had the threshold, mm-hmm. which seems a bit high to me. So to be eligible for the scheme, you have to be earning under um, $125,000 a year as an individual, mm-hmm. 200000 um, as a couple. That's pretty generous. I thought it was quite generous. And if you look at it statistically, it places you in the top quintile of earnings um, across Australia, mm, not mm. to mention the first home buyer cohort. Right. Um, okay. You know, at the. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah okay. The 125,000 puts you in the top quintile of um, full time earners, mm. um, full time wage earners in Australia, according to the latest ABS data. 
So four fifths of all wage earners could apply could could be eligible for this if they're first home buyers. Yeah, and but as you say, the chance that a first home buyer is earning this is even lower than that. So well, potentially, right. and 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 the thing that I guess for me was like, well, people in those very high levels of income already mm. have a higher incidence of home ownership rates. Right, right. Potentially, the the. And I'm not, and I'm not saying the scheme doesn't make sense, right? I'm just saying the way that it's structured, I think it is susceptible to um, crowding out from higher income earners. Right. Okay. Um, having said that, there is an element of self-selection here. So higher income earners are going to be looking at a five percent on a higher level property. Lower income earners might be targeting a lower property. Mm-hmm. In which case, it doesn't really target some of the spatial equality issues and just about um, spatial equality. So this idea that if you're a high income earner, you can basically afford to be closer. To okay. a, a employment centre or whatever, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, I think I I just think that the scheme being limited, having limited places, and it is by financial year. Mm-hmm. So um, this year we might expect up to twenty thousand because it starts in January, it refreshes oh, in July. Right, okay. um, so this calendar year, you mean we get 20, in the 000. calendar right, year, okay. but financial year it's ten thousand a year. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I just worry if you have that limit and you open it up to a really broad cohort, is it susceptible to people on higher incomes getting mm-hmm. in there? quicker mm-hmm. and potentially crowding out um, lower incomes. So it wouldn't be an issue if it was an unlimited number of places, but because it's a limited number of places, <laughs> there's a chance. Sorry, I'm not putting words in your mouth. Is oh, that no, the... no, no. So I guess the issue with an unlimited number of places is that that's when we start to see more pressure on the demand side of housing mm. and prices potentially being pushed up. Which was the argument against the first home buyers grants way back in the day, yeah, right? Exactly. Was that if you give everyone some money, then the sellers just put the price up and no one's better off except the sellers. And so the buyers... Some, the government's digging them in their own exactly. hole. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I think um, that's where it gets a little bit complicated. Right. And that's where maybe should we just be looking at policies that address the price of houses? Mm-hmm. You know, what what this policy is doing is trying to increase rates of home ownership by saying deposits are really high. Mm. Here's a leg up by guaranteeing up to 15% of the loan mm. and helping um, people with a lower deposit avoid LMI. Um what if we took a policy that said, "Well, why are those deposits so high?" Yeah. And and can we look at other yeah, right. factors? You know, would you, would you be in favour of a, a mandated or otherwise reduced level of LMI benchmarking, or simply the banks? Because the thing is, the banks don't. It's not just LMI, right? The banks actually give you a different rate, or some banks, depending on what sort of deposit you've got. If you've got a twenty percent deposit, you're getting a better rate. Mm. If you've got a five percent deposit, so you kind of get whacked both ways. You got to mm-hmm. pay LMI, and then you've got to also probably pay a higher rate. Um, Again, I, I said I, I don't see a big reason for a twenty. And maybe you told me I'm wrong, but I don't see a big reason for a twenty percent deposit in and of itself. Other than that's what we used to. If I said to someone with a to your point, one hundred twenty-five thousand dollars income, look, you got plenty of income, you can you can well and truly afford to buy to pay for this house. Whether you've got the the deposit or not, it's almost secondary to the fact that you've got well and truly enough buying power. Your credit rating and worthiness is linked to the house. Not like the US, where you can walk away where a twenty percent deposit would be important because it's a it's a buffer. In this case, there's kind of I don't see the huge downside. I got to say, I, my understanding is that the banks are adhering to you know the reason that Australia is so secure financially is mm. because we have capital adequacy ratios and things like that. There's right, a right. certain amount that need to be held, but at the same time, I agree. I think the the role of the bank loan <laughs> to an extent is to um, take risk. Yeah, yeah, that that gets priced into the rate, and it also depends on you know whether the mortgage um, person applying for a mortgage can seek um, a guarantor in. You know, yeah, the right. parents or whatever else. Yeah. <laughs> back to the same point. Mum nice. and dad, if you're listening, <laughs> <laughs> I love you. Mrs. Owen, if you can uh, get... <laughs> just there'll be a phone call after this recording. Um, all right, so I'm going to I'm going to now put you completely on the spot. Great. I'm going to make you treasurer for a day. 
Yeah. <laughs> or, or a year or a week, as long as you need, as long as you need. So, so um, Josh, have, have, a couple, have some long service leave. Eliza's going to come and take over for a bit. Now, if I asked you to com- balance the competing Uh-oh. interests of the current and would-be homeowners and potentially the broader economy, so if I make you the home ownership policy czar for a period of time, what do you do? Do you mean I don't just get to sit here and criticise? <laughs> of course you do. I Look, actually have to do something. <laughs> it's kind of the same thing, isn't it? They, actually, they don't actually do anything. They just, they, they just make their own criticism. They're making laws. That's oh, how no, it works. Look, look, I think um, so going back to the demand factors, mm. I would probably look to ease investment in the housing market by looking at other areas where Australians can invest. Mm. And I think that we have seen, you know, uh, investigation into superannuation, for example, and making sure that that's as competitive as it can be. Mm. Um, uh, Maybe um, just, I guess, uh, reducing people's reliance on acquiring a property portfolio. Um, So whether that's investing in, um, you know, more productive um, sectors of the economy, mm. investing in new um, science and technology that, that, you know, we could potentially be world leaders in. Um, so I, I think those things are important. Um, I, and I... Um, yeah, it's a hard job. Isn't it? <laughs> That's why we get to criticise. It's even better when we're not oh, there. I think increasing the supply of social and affordable housing. Okay. Um, one of the, um, I guess challenges of this is that it can compete with the private um, market mm. and so it might not be um, uh, as as good a policy for developers. So mm. what we're seeing at the moment is more integration of um, social and affordable housing with uh, new developments and, mm. and having mm. schemes that incentivize that. Um, I think as well, like just having a look at the, the building industry and the challenges that they're facing, you know, what? why is it um, still so expensive to produce housing when, mm. you know, we could be innovating in this space to see the cost of builds come down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then that becomes a conversation about like, well, where are you getting your materials from? What What's the, you know, challenges there? And, yeah, and what's increasing costs in that space? Okay. But I definitely think whatever you do, it has to be holistic mm. because you can't expect to, you know, change negative gearing and capital gains taxes and then have this kind of, um, reliance on home ownership and, mm. and property accumulation to have a comfortable retirement. Um, but at the same time, you can't expect property prices to keep increasing and then, you know, not ha- have people not accessing the housing market for when they retire as well. Right, right. You're robbing Peter to pay Paul for some, for some degree or other. Yeah, I think it was research from the Grattan Institute that was saying that uh, the uh, home ownership at retirement age can be the difference between a comfortable retirement yeah. and a retirement of poverty. Oh, because man, I'm if, not surprised. if you're still renting, yeah. right, your housing costs are going to be huge. Yeah, yeah. So that's something. Especially on the pension, it's just you're not going to be able to. I mean, what's left? Yeah. By the time you've Sydney or Melbourne rents, there's not much left at all. Um, do you? I'm not. I'm not sure to what degree you guys want to talk about this, or you personally want to talk about this. Your views on negative gearing as a as a. Do you have a view on its role in the housing market, whether we should have it or not, or, or a reduced version of it, or, or selectively apply to try and take some of the pressure off the investment in, in housing? Yeah, definitely. And I think the midpoint of the analysis before the election suggested that house prices would be about 5% lower than they otherwise would have been. Us, mate. No, probably never going to go down, remember? <laughs> that, was, that, was, that was the magic pudding policy. Yeah, exactly. Everyone with their house was going to be okay and everyone buying a house was going to get cheaper, but that was that was okay. No, I think targeting those um, <laughs> investor incentives around um, negative gearing and capital gains mm. uh, are important for reducing pressure on house prices. Mm. I think they probably would have had 
have had a, a small sort of effect. Mm. Um, but again, you've got to think about, well, how do we generate growth then for Australians? Yeah, yeah, yeah. in terms of the their investment portfolios mm. writ large, right? I think, I, look, I've, I've, I'm, I'm, as I said, I've, I've had a long journey of trying to work out whether we should, to what degree housing should be financialised. And I have to say, I think, you know, the, the old, the politician's favourite favorite thing is to grandfather anything, right? So no one's worse off and you have to do that because it's just, otherwise you can't get elected. But it does strike me that at least in, in housing, I don't think necessarily it should be applied to new housing, just housing in general, removing that tax benefit to just simply kind of decouple a little bit. Yeah. The financialization of new sales. Now, would it have hurt housing prices? Probably, but again... Frankly, the other thing is, if you've had an investment property for any length of time, you made a fortune anyway. There are people who'd bought, suffered that, say, 6% decline, as you say. You'd have had to have bought it almost no more than 12 months before the election. Yes. There, was yeah. just, there was just almost nobody was going to be made worse off by it. Yeah, and I think it, it is a almost a philosophical question of what do we want ownership? What do we think of ownership? What is the importance of ownership? Mm-hmm. And I think at the moment we have a... Um, you know, the census data indicates that about um, two-thirds of Australians have an interest mm-hmm. in housing, whether it's because they own their property outright or they have a mortgage. Right. And as long as that's the case, as long as that majority has an interest mm. in the value of the property that they own, <laughs> that's, right. the policies, that's a pretty voting block, right? Yeah. The policies yeah. are going to favour house prices being higher. Yeah. Now, you could see down the line um, ownership rates fall to the extent that the policy starts to mm. tip the other way, mm, but mm, uh, mm. I imagine that wouldn't be for a long time. That's a fascinating idea, actually. Imagine <laughs> that going the other way. Yeah. I, I guess someone's got to own them, right? That's the other thing. So, you know, yeah. unless you've got a major landlord class. That being said, your thoughts on so Germany, for example, famously has a very, very high level of long term renting as opposed to home ownership, and that's a very different model there. They don't seem particularly worse off economically. Uh, maybe that's wrong, by the way. So feel free to correct me there. There, there is some sense. Do, are we? Do we fetishize home ownership too much? Do you think? In a country like ours, where home ownership is so vital to comfortable retirement, mm. then no, I don't okay. think so. That's got to change. Right. If okay. if we want to adopt long term renting, then um, not that I'm saying we shouldn't necessarily. I'm just, I'm just curious that in those yeah. circumstances, there, there's an argument to say yeah. Germany manages it okay. Yeah you know, are we so, missing the boat? So the economist's perspective, I guess, is utilitarian. You want right. as many people to be as well off as they can. And um, under the, the current kind of system that we have in Australia, where mm. your housing costs are so reduced by owning outright by retirement yeah, right. and the family home is, you know, not subject to capital gains tax mm. um, and the also the equity in the home um, there uh, there is some data from a hurry which suggests that people draw on um, equity in their home later in life okay. to fund things like healthcare right, yeah, right. so you know if you mm, have mm. A, an expensive healthcare system where healthcare costs are rising um, if you have a, a system where you're much better off in retirement owning mm. then these are the kinds of things where yeah ownership still has to be accessible. If you start to change those things, then mm-hmm. some people might be better off renting in the long term. Okay. Um, and I think- As long as they've got sufficient income earning ability during retirement to as not long as put themselves are, in poverty. Exactly. As long as people are comfortable. Right, right. Makes yeah. sense. So we've talked a little bit about policy at a big picture level. Mm. Now for individual listeners listening to us, I said most either are renters, buyers or owners. So in, in some case, everyone's got a part at least either in current or future property ownership. Um, I've got to talk to you about interest rates. So okay. we've, we've talked about rates, obviously, 75 basis points last year, 2019, I think they were cut by. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, so 75 basis points. Um, I say basis points, it makes me sound more, more, uh, <laughs> more, more, more clever. You know, I say 0.75%, but if I say basis points, yeah, so the, the very from, word basis points add, adds 15 points to my IQ, I'm sure. So Yeah, so over 2019, <laughs> they went from 1.5 to 7.5. Okay. So halved in the space of five months. And 
that obviously, as we've already talked about, made housing at some level either more affordable and or went up. The price went up because people could simply afford to pay more. So that's that's has a natural inclination of pushing prices up or yeah, it was putting I'll, upward pressure on prices. So to, to just expand on that, Australians have what we call a high elasticity for housing. Okay. So it means that when the price of money is cheaper, we're more likely to veer into um, purchasing housing. Okay. And that's why demand rises and the price gets pushed up. Which you would expect, but also then goes to that financialization, right? Where obviously we're getting that very clearly, that message very clearly and we're acting on it, which is either good or bad. So that being said then, I guess the, the question is where to next for interest rates? To, to the extent you have a view and you may not. Um, if you buy now, that's fine. Very few people buy on fixed rates. And if they do, they're, they're fixing for two or five years. Mm. For a 30-year commitment, I don't know what I'm even asking you, but, but paint me a picture of buying a house now with a 30-year commitment where rates are where they are, do they go up? Do they stay low? Do they? Is this a new normal? Are they lower for longer? Should people be a little bit careful because at year X in the future, they're going to have to be able to find an extra few hundred bucks a week to, to make the repayments? Mm. What, what's, how does it look for you? Well, I guess we just consider the broader economic story where interest rates globally were cut drastically after the GFC, mm. which was in 2008. So over 10 years ago, we started seeing the reduction in rates and in a lot of places, they haven't come back up. In some countries, you have um, negative interest rates. Um, and in Australia, um, it, it's sort of expected that there could be a cash rate cut um, as, as early as next month because of you know the tragedy that we've seen with the, the bushfires across Australia, the impact that that's had on the economy. Oh, right, okay. Um, so that that's sort of... That's interesting. Yeah, I think there's potentially um, a scope for, for uh, a cash rate cut. Um, so another 25 basis points as early as February. Um, so much then, room left after that. Yeah, so... <laughs> 0 0.5, that's two cuts away from zero. Yeah, so um, I think that rates are likely to remain low for a long time. Mm -hmm. Part of that as well is that we're missing the relationship between um, employment and inflation. So what we'd usually expect when the labour market starts to tighten up, which we see through uh, a, a lower um, unemployment rate, mm. we would expect that wages start to rise because you have more people um, filling jobs in the economy and um, the, um, the, you know, employees have less of an unemployed pool to, to choose from. Mm. So that sort of puts that upward pressure on, on wages. Mm. We're not really seeing that. And part of the reason we're not really seeing that is because of the rise of, uh, you know, underemployment. Mm. We have a persistently high underemployment rate where even though people are technically employed and they're being captured in that em employment rate, right. they're not working as much as they want. They're not earning as much as they want. They're not finding the hours. Is this the gig economy or is that too simple a clarification? Uh, I think the gig economy is part of it. Okay. So we, I think, believe in one of our Twitter discussions, uh, <laughs> I, I referenced uh, a survey that found um, a few years ago now that... Um, uh, almost 20% of um, Uber drivers in Perth mm. um, had previously been employed in the mining sector. So yeah. that's, and that's like, you know, chemical engineers and things like that. So On one hand, it's a nice safety net to know you've got something to go to, but it's not exactly replacing your previous income, that's is it? That's right. You're looking at a structural shift from quite high compensation to, mm. you know, technically, yes, employment, but, but lower levels of compensation. So if we're not seeing... Um, that inflation, then there's not the incentive to, to curb inflation with interest rates, right. which is why we've kind of got this ongoing, persistently low period mm. <laughs> to get back to your point <laughs> after a very long no, no, journey. It's a good, well, the other thing is the participation rate too, right? Like the, the other thing keeping people is there more people entering the workforce over time, which is meaning that any extra 
demand for workers is being made up with increased supply rather than higher prices. The old economics 101, right? In theory, if, if demand goes up, supply stays the same, prices should rise. In mm-hmm. this case, we've, in theory, we've got more jobs being created, which is positive. We've got more supply because more people are entering the workforce and kind of soaking up that, that demand rather than seeing prices roll, wages, I should say, rise as a result. Yeah, I mean, I think it's actually a positive thing that more people are entering the labour force and it's... Um, not putting upward pressure on unemployment. So yeah, yeah. more people are entering the lab- labour force, but jobs growth is is mm-hmm. increasing as well. So mm-hmm. those people that are starting to participate are getting jobs. Yep. We are seeing wage growth come up a little bit. So it's come from, uh, it reached a record low of um, 1.9%. It's now come back up to 2.2%. Okay. So it's still pretty sluggish, but, you know, slowly kind of getting there. And is that... So I guess if, you, if I actually then f- go forward two or three years, if you're buying a house today, what do you, you know, how would you be thinking about interest rates? Are you are you bracing for by 2024, just to pick up 2025, get to go at five years, now we're in a new year? Is, are, are there higher rates by that point? Do you have to start to think to yourself, okay, well, now we're in the good times now, rates are as low as they've been. I'll buy my house now, that's fine, but I need to realise that I should expect that rates are going to be 100 basis points, 150 basis points higher at some point. So I need to factor oh, that into my budgeting. I mean, that's in the application process. You, you tested on your ability to repay a mortgage um, up to, I mm. believe it's 2.5% above the product rate that right. you're looking at. So those sorts of things are factored into the Do you reckon whole... people factor into themselves? I, I'm, I'm more worried about the people <laughs> who kind of go, the bank says, I can, you know, it's, it's the old story. No one goes to the bank and says, hey, I can afford this much. How much what, what can I buy? Everyone goes to the bank manager or most people go to the bank manager and say, how much can I borrow? Mm. And the bank says, oh, you borrow this much? Oh, great, fantastic. <laughs> I, I worry to some degree, not so much, I mean, partly, yes, about, about whether the bank's testing the AR, as you say. To some degree, though, the broader economy and for those individual people, you kind of get used to a lifestyle, right? Like at some point, if you've got to find an extra couple hundred bucks a week, whatever the numbers end up being, that's a, that's a remarkably difficult thing if you've been living a lifestyle or you simply weren't prepared for that at some point and or, frankly, the money that has to go into repayments comes out of the economy. And so... There's also kind of a broader economic impact of having to find that cash. Yeah, uh, I think, uh, you know, people may be able to adapt, but again, it's all sort of um, factored in. We um, we typically see a pretty low portion of, of people who are sort of behind on their mortgage repayments. Right. So people are coping and adapting, even mm. in this very low kind of wage growth environment. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, in terms of interest rates and, uh, things like that in the future, um, it's worked into the application process, mm. but if you've got your crystal ball, <laughs> <laughs> um, be nice. if, if I had it, I'd be using it for stock prices. Don't worry about that. I, would, I wouldn't be looking at interest rates. Yeah. The, the, uh, okay. So, so if rates are there, take, take us then to property prices. And again, I'll ask you to put your, wherever that crystal ball is that we just hid. Um, how, how, do, how do prices feel to you right now in the context of the future? So we've talked about them having been higher, coming down, coming back. So kind of done that journey. Hmm. No one knows what the future brings, but how, how do house prices, I guess, how do they feel to you now in terms of their, their, their relative level? And then looking forward, what do you expect? Yeah, so as I kind of mentioned at the top, I think what we're expecting to see for 2020 is um, potentially a slowdown in the momentum of growth. And it's not necessarily a feeling. It's looking at the fundamentals and Mm -hmm. saying, what does wage growth look like? It's still quite low. Um, You know, we haven't seen the levels of eased credit that allowed house prices to get you know, to their kind of peak levels. Mm-hmm. Let me take you back. I actually want to ask, because I'm glad you mentioned the, the top of the show, because there was one question I wanted to ask. You talked about the way 
that you got this Sydney Melbourne being leading markets, and then kind of going from there. And I don't know if you know it, if you have a view. I'm just intellectually curious. What is it that creates that that ripple effect or that kind of momentum? Of it? Why why Sydney and Melbourne, and then why elsewhere? Is it people moving? Is it is it the relative expectations of what the Joneses are doing that Sydney's up, so therefore we should pay more too? Sydney's down, we should pay less too. Population move, economic growth. Like what's what's actually? I understand that it happens. I'm just curious as to whether you have a view on why, or what, what you know, what what creates those outward ripples, if you like. Mm. Uh, I'm not exactly sure why, but if we look doesn't at, stop me, Eliza. I just uh, make stuff up. <laughs> if we look at the examples of research that we've seen um, at the city level, mm. so this same dynamic that occurs across the country, where you might have Sydney and Melbourne lead, and then other cities follow. Mm. Within Sydney and Melbourne, there is actually quite a distinct pat- pattern where the high end of the market leads, okay. and then lower price levels will adopt the same growth pattern. Right. Might not be to the same extent, but, yeah, okay. you know, and out of interest, that's why I find it um, so hard when people say, well, where should I buy in <laughs> Sydney? And it's like, it's all kind of going the same way. Okay. It's just, um, and and some of the... That's ex- my next question, but I'll write that down. <laughs> some of the explanations that have been put forward for that um, is that um, people who incidentally own higher value houses, um, might be on higher incomes and in positions where they have access to uh, more information, you know, if they're working in finance or things like that, Mm, they can mm, kind mm. of be the first movers. Um, The other sort of idea during a uh, kind of um, upswing, so when we see uh, the ripple of, of prices rising, spreading outwards, um, is that areas are just becoming too expensive. And so people look oh, to the next right. okay. region for yeah. the next affordable option. It makes sense. I, I think it makes sense. And it's something that we've seen uh, where people say, okay, I can't buy in Sydney. I'm going to you know, look to Hobart or I'm going to look to mm. the central coast or I'm going to look to something that is uh, nearby, but um, perhaps you know, they're looking for a different price point, different mm. lifestyle. Um, and so buy into other areas. Nice. Last question before we get into our special buy, hold, or sell, which I have given you a little bit of warning about, but I haven't told you the topic, so I'll see how you go. Um, look at the property market for me. What data points make you most optimistic and most pessimistic? Or what are the, what are the ones you're kind of going, that's cool and that's not so great or that's a worry? Um, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but just if you think about kind of the, you know, like everything the, everything could go one of two ways. What sort of data points, what what metrics, what numbers are you seeing that make you feel good, make you feel bad in whatever way, shape, or form you want to throw that at me? <laughs> Okay, so I think some positive things that we've seen in the economy. Um, I'm uh, quite interested to see what Southeast Queensland does this year. It's had a long period where growth has been pretty flat, mm. but we're starting to see some jobs creation uh, in the scientific and technical services space. Okay. So um, over November, that um, portion, that sort of sector had a high rate of jobs growth um, that was specific to Queensland and, and you can see a lot of that happening in southeast Queensland. Um, the price point for the area is also, you know, 30 to 40% lower than Sydney and Melbourne. Mm. So there's an affordability. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we're also seeing some interesting new developments. So if you look at the Sunshine Coast, there's um, they're trying to sort of ground... Um, the Sunshine Coast with a new kind of CBD set up in uh, around Maroochydore mm-hmm. and areas like that. Mm. Um, and a lot of, um, I, I guess, retailers are sort of looking um, and setting up in that space as okay. well. Uh, and I guess on the downside, you've got um, obviously low wages growth is, is going to be a big one and one that we think could hinder further price momentum in 2020. Um, the 
uh, rental space uh, in Sydney, we're still seeing, for example, that uh, rents are declining off the back of a big overhang of supply. Rental yields are very compressed mm-hmm. where we have those kind of high asset prices. But because of the low mortgages, there's sort of a, um, a bigger spread now between, you know, the rental yields and the, the interest that you're sort of repaying. So that could be oh, right, um, of course. advantageous for investors yeah, yeah. as well. Yeah. Again, uh, thinking, <laughs> thinking, um, thinking again, that financialization idea is just, it feels like a permi- uh, it promulgates right through the entire market, or right? even to your point there of the, you know, again, with stocks, we would say, well, okay, stock prices should be higher because rates are lower and the, the you know, the increment over the risk-free rate, to use some stock jargon, should be lower because you've got a lower risk-free rate. In other words, interest rates are lower, so your return should be lower and your yields are probably going to be lower as well. That, that very much, again, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm super excited about it, but it, it's, it's a nice parallel for those who are investing in shares to look at property and kind of think about it the same way. You may be in a, in a more one-for-one way than we have in the past. Yeah, and I think, again, it just comes back to, you know, we have this current paradigm, however you can participate in it to, mm-hmm. you know, make yourself secure. Right, right, right. It's kind of, I guess, and that's why we try and provide, um, you know, just objective information about the property market mm-hmm. so that people can kind of utilise that as well. Very good. We're talking to Eliza Rowan, the head of Australian research for CoreLogic. Eliza, are you ready to play buy, hold or sell? Let's do it. All right, here we go. So we usually talk stocks and investing, but uh, we're going to play a little game. I'm going to hit you with a topic, an idea or a suggestion, and you can tell me whether it's a buy, hold or sell, and maybe a quick reason why. Buy, hold or sell an Australian recession by, 2030, uh, by 2023. By 2023? Yes. It's a, it's a bit far out to call. Okay. I think if you're going... So how this game's played, you know, <laughs> <don't> you? <laughs> Go on. Um, if you're looking at the RBA, they're still expecting pretty strong economic growth over 2020. Okay. Uh, I think they're forecasting about um, over 2.7% okay. for annual GDP growth. So I might go with the RBA on that one. Okay. So does that mean I sell for recession? So you're, you're, you're uh, selling the idea of an Australian recession by in 2020. Yeah. You're saying it's not going to happen. All right. And you're not going to give me a view on 2023. Where's that crystal ball, Scott? <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on. Uh, <laughs> all right. Buy, hold, or sell capital city house prices being up by more than 10% this year. Ooh. Oh, um, <laughs> yeah, hold. I'm hold? not sure. I, yeah. I, uh, I think, yeah, it's definitely a possibility, right. but I don't want to stake my hard-earned finances. <laughs> There's no money changing hands here. We promise, ATO. It's all, it's all above board. Buy, hold, or sell fractional property investment. The whole kind of ah. brick X kind of idea of being able to go and buy a, you know, a proportional share of, a, of investment property somewhere. Yeah, I, I will. I'll buy it. Okay. I think with property prices going up... Um, it's something even in the build to rent segment, mm. we've seen the government start to change policy uh, or, or, or um, discuss changes of policy, you know. Mm-hmm. So you've got a um, development industry that's looking to, um, yeah, explore that space. So where you have, I guess, more institutional ownership of property, um, that might be something that people could get a share of as well. Very nice. Buy, hold or sell changes negative gearing in the next three years. Sell. Sell. Not going to happen? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Not for the last election. All right. Um, <laughs> buy, hold, or sell smashed avocados? Buy it all. Delicious. <laughs> You're a fan? I love smashed avocados. Bloody millennials, I tell you. Oh, <laughs> you can get a pretty good deal. And if you make it at home. <laughs> there you go. Smoking like a true. Okay, last one. Buy, hold, or sell the OK Boomer meme? Oh, 
Oh. Are you buy Hollywood? For those, for those who don't necessarily aren't, aren't all over the socials, OK Boomer is the new response to an old person like someone that might be speaking in this microphone as I speak right now. <laughs> uh, when they say, hey, yeah, sure, sure, old guy, whatever you reckon. OK Boomer. I'll buy it, but I'm not. I'm not buying it because you know I I want to weaponize it against. <laughs> Although I think it's actually quite a um, transformative meme. Ooh. So um, if I start nagging my housemates, for example, <laughs> about wanting to clean the house, they'll be like, "Okay, boomer." So it's a it's a transformative meme. I think it will perhaps not hold the same meaning, <laughs> but I think it will be a nice shorthand to employ over time. Very very cool and. Uh, to your housemates who, who are listening, clean the house. It's not <laughs> no, that you, hard. I love you guys. It's fine. <laughs> she does, but clean the house. Come on. All right. We've been speaking with Eliza Owen, the, uh, the head of Australian research at CoreLogic. Thank you for joining us on Motley Fool Money. Thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Lots of fun. I've learned a heap, so I might really appreciate you coming in. That does wrap us up for Motley Fool Money, but before we go, don't forget you can and you should subscribe to the Triple M Motley Fool Money podcast. Actually... I'm going to break in my usual spiel right now to say you also should be following Eliza on Twitter. So if you're on Twitter, and you should be, I told you guys all the time, I'm TMF Scott P. Follow me because, you know, I'm doing the show and I'm getting it for free, so just do the right thing. Follow me on Twitter. Eliza is at Eliza Owen. That's E-L-I-Z-A underscore Owen, O-W-E-N. Eliza is great for whole lots of really cool information, topics, debates. Um, you will absolutely be better off by following her on Twitter. Now, back to my usual spiel. Also, follow us and subscribe to the Triple M Motley for Money podcast through iTunes or your favourite Android podcast app. And if you like what we're doing, please give us a rating. Five stars would be much appreciated. Leave us a review. Tell your friends who couldn't do with a little bit of foolish straight talk as well. And you can get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back next week with another dose of foolish insight. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.